He also did not successfully convince the court that the accused vehicle was not allowed to enter the cemetery. He was not even aware of how the procession would take place from the stadium to Memorial Park Cemetery. He did not have a list of the dignitaries in a accredited or authorized vehicle and people that were allowed to enter the cemetery, nor was he aware of its existence. He failed to dispute that the accused vehicle had been compliant. He, he, he has also come to a conclusion after he had obtained all the information of his internal investigation that the complainant has acted correctly, but concede in the same breath that he failed to verify whether the accused vehicle went through a security checkpoint or screening. He has therefore confirmed that it was an oversight on his part to have completed the internal inquiry without establishing whether the accused vehicle had undergone such screening, or, uh, such screening or not. His evidence is given in a general perspective and not always have a direct reflection of the merits of this case. He was also not, he was also sure that if the vehicle had a permit, it was allowed into the stadium and the cemetery, which also contradicts then the version of Colonel Fenter's belief that if the vehicle had a permit, it could have only be for the stadium and not for the cemetery. Therefore, after properly considering the consideration of his evidence in light of the totality of the evidence, he did not impress the court that his version, that the version that Colonel Fenter acted correctly should be believed. It appears to the court that the internal investigation was completed with a lot of shortcomings. However, due to my ruling in terms of the Section 174 application, I have already indicated the views of this court with regards to the accused vehicle permit to enter the cemetery in this regard. I will, at this stage, not take this point any further. Due to the Section 174 application, I've already indicated that the court have believed that the accused's vehicle had a right to enter in this regard. In the evaluation of the evidence of Colonel Fenter, Jacobus, <coughs> Johannes Jacobus Fenter, the court remarks as follows, under paragraph 36, he is the person who has stopped the vehicle of the accused and denied them entry. After he refused entry, he was assaulted by way of push by both of the accused. He had not retaliated in any manner. He has not given them any permission to enter. The only credible piece of evidence is that his version is corroborated by Exhibit 3 and a portion of Staff Sergeant Gilbert Mapisa's evidence. The state indicated that the court should accept the evidence of the witness because there is no material contradictions in his evidence and that his evidence is being corroborated by Exhibit 3 and that of Gilbert Mapisa concerning the assault. The defense rebutted this view and argued that these contradictions cannot be assessed in isolation of the version of the accused in respect of their defense or justification and that it is indeed material. 
the following terms of the version of his version is established. He made four statements, which has given rise to discrepancies. And the state replied that these discrepancies is not material. These contradictions is greatly in respect of the fact surrounding the issue of st his statement and his oral evidence that address the issue of entry as a person or a vehicle had to have a permit and being part of a convoy. He did not see a visible permit or someone may have put it there later to something resemble of a reflection that may be there, whether they were given permission to enter or not. His evidence was not impressive when he tried to explain the discrepancies under cross-examination. Objectively, he has not conceded anything favorable to the <coughs> defense, even if it is clear that he had no grounds other than to concede. For example, in his statement, he creates the impression that they, as a person, are not allowed to enter, and then he wants to justify it as meant to say they should be interpreted as a vehicle. State argued, that, state argued that I should be mindful that not all discrepancies in statement caused by one sentence could be interpreted only, could be interpreted in one or two ways. Must be read in context of the whole statement, handle different versions of the same witness with circumspection. Secondly, that not all discrepancies affect the credibility of the witness. However, Colonel Fenter is a senior police officer with 36 years of experience. Which six of those years was within the South African Police Services, Presidential Protection Services, head office in Pretoria. He is not a normal police officer or a constable or a lame person in this regard. In fact, he have made four statements and was also assisted by his union, which refer him to Herter and Spies, who in turn refer him to, every, to every form. It was important for him to testify about the reason he stopped the accuser's vehicle, but also so many attempts in years have gone by. He still creates different impressions of why he stopped them. One of these impressions is in line with the version of the accused that for all these years, they were under the impression that they were not allowed entry as a person. When assessing the discrepancies in its context, I cannot Well, our apologies in that uh, break in uh, transmission. This as uh, the magistrate Leland Punsami is now getting to the crux of the matter in reading the judgment in the assault case against EFF leader Julius Malema and Member of Parliament Dr. Mbuiseni Ndlozi, who of course stand accused of allegedly assaulting Lieutenant Colonel Johannes Fenter in 2018. And uh, this, of course, uh, at the uh, memorial, or, or rather at uh, the laying to rest of uh, the struggle 
Marvel stalwart Winnie Madikizela Mandela. And when they entered uh, the cemetery, their vehicle was stopped. And uh, pursuant to that, there was a scuffle that ensued. And Lieutenant Colonel Johannes Fenter uh, then laid a case of assault against the pair. So uh, our apologies there. We have lost uh, that particular feed, uh, but I believe we do have it back. Um, there seems to have been proceedings. Uh, something has happened in the time that we came out of that. Uh, so I don't know. I can't tell you because I'm just looking at a screen and I'm listening to what you are listening to. So at the moment, we have the picture back. So we have a visual, but uh, the sound, I believe, is now back. That for all these years, they were under the impression that they were not allowed entry as a person. When assessing the discrepancies, it is in its context. I cannot attach any other meaning that this is a discrepancy or contradiction when read it, it, when read it in totality. It don't make sense and it does not affect and it does affect credibility of the witness. He should know why he stopped them and why he refused entry. This case is going on for years, and yes, I do acknowledge the reason why a statement is being made in the first instance, and what may give rise to errors in a statement such as language, various culture, cultural differences between the witnesses and the person who have took it, took down the statement, and the fact that no explanation is requi required when, when taken down the statement, but four statements, same errors, says a lot. Now, ultimately, this is what the state wants the court to believe. The statement versus the oral evidence should not be inferred out of context, but assessed in a whole. So the time the witness made the first statement when memory was better reserved is actually secondary to the oral evidence, which is given years later in the whole context, I must accept that in spite of these contradictions, it has no effect on credibility. I disagree with this view and found that the discrepancies does have an effect on credibility. After mentioning this, I am further aware that not all contradictions and discrepancies is material. For it to be relevant, it must have an effect on the definitional elements of the offense. It may be viewed as the state indicated that it is irrelevant in the defense as per <coughs> their heads of argument that the discrepancies material. These discrepancies goes to the heart of the right to enter and has a bearing on the accuser's version of justification. I will deal with that later on because whether it is relevant or irrelevant, it will depend on what test the court has applied for the grounds of justification. 37. In the assessment of Colonel Fenter's evidence, it comes to the I come to the following conclusion, which is argued by the state and the defense. There, has been an, there, has, there was an assault by way of pushing on Colonel Fenter caused by the accused acting in unison. The injuries were sustained. No injuries were sustained, just mild pain. This assault occurred because the accused believed they acted in justification. The accused lack mens rea. Therefore, I consider his evidence. Therefore, 
after I considered his evidence in respect of the assault and that it has been corroborated by the video footage and to certain extent Staff Sergeant uh, Mapisa's evidence who, was, who has witnessed the pushing of the complainant, I found that the discrepancies in both versions is material. It will refer to the accused's version of justification. It leads to the assessment of their version what their state of mind was when they was when they were refused entry. This will be taken further as well when I deal with the application of the law itself. 38, the evaluation of the evidence of Gilbert Mapisa, the court remarks as follows. The impression created by this witness is that he has worked at a lot of state funerals as a military police officer and after the three years of experience as a staff sergeant, he knows the procedure that must be applied. On the 14th of April 2018, he stopped the vehicle of the accused because they were not part of the convoy. He let them pass because of VIP status. However, in his evidence, there is two versions created and both can, cannot be true. I quote, I confirm that the vehicle that were having escort were directed straight to VIP parking, including the black veto, which was transporting the EFF members. The state indicated that the court should accept the evidence of the state witness because there is no material discrepancy and that the and that he maintained under cross-examination that the black veto was not part of the convoy. The defense rebutted this view and argued that these contradictions cannot be, by, cannot be assessed in isolation of the version of the accused in respect of the defense of justification and that it is indeed material. Once again, I am requested to accept that the oral evidence that the accused is not part of that the accused is not part of the convoy is more probable than the statement which was made when the event should have still be fresh in his memory. This means that the witness in this regard has contradicted himself and the one version also contradicts the complainant. His version was also be, his version must also be further assessed in light of the accused's version with the race defense of justification. I, I have already indicated in the section 174 application that I believe that the state failed to prove that the accused was not part of the convoy and refrained from making a finding on credibility. Now, at all, now that all the evidence has been placed before the court, the court will make a credibility finding at the conclusion of the case, of the ruling. After the evaluation of the state witnesses, it is a matter of logic that the prosecution evidence does not need to be rejected in order to conclude that there is a reasonable possibility that the accused might be innocent. What, what is required in order to reach that conclusion is at least an equivalent possibility that the incriminating evidence might not be true. Evidence that incriminates the accused and evidence that exonerates him cannot both be true. There is not even a possibility that both might be true. The one is possible true only if, the, only if there is an equivalent possibility that the other is untrue. In the case of S. versus Stevens, it was held that a court should not follow should not follow what has been called a compartmentalized approach 
to assess the evidence, namely which divorces the evidence before the court into compartments by examining the state's case in isolation of the defense case. This view has also been confirmed in the Supreme Court of Appeal. It would refer to the state versus Naidu and others, which is under a footnote. 41, the totality of the evidence must be considered and therefore the court must ev evaluate the accused's version as well. The court considered, 42, the court considered the evidence of the defense and remarked as follows on Mr. Malema and Mr. Nlozi's evidence. The defense addressed the court and their version should be accepted because of the following reasons. They have successfully raised the defense of justification. Their version, is co their version was concise and they did not crack during cross-examination. They did not hesitate to give answers. Their oral evidence and plea explanation is precise. They stood by their version and did not deviate in any manner. They successfully proved that they were acting in justification. The prosecutor addressed the court at the accused's version should be rejected because the accused version, or the court will just re rephrase, the accused when assaulting the complainant acted in unison, the discrepancies must be assessed in context and it is not material to the evidence of assault. That there is no version which was put to the complainant that they did not assault him. The accused did not act in necessity that the defense of justification should be dismissed. The accused, when giving their evidence, was not elusive to questions and did not hesitate in answering any questions. They have not contradicted themselves or created different versions before the court. I can also find, I cannot also find any improbabilities in their evidence. On this basis, I have not assessed their evidence separately as their versions is similar in nature and they have no contradictions on one another. They, are also given, they have also given court a detailed explanation They have also given the court a detailed explanation as well as in the time collapse which was caused by them being stopped by the complainant that the court should not infer that they were late or have forced their way into the convoy. 43, the applicable law, common purpose, the doctrine of common, and pur com common purpose, complicity, secondary participation, Common design or joint enterprise refers to the situation where two or more people embark on a course of action with a common purpose resulting in the commission of a crime. In this situation, the participants are jointly liable for all the results from the act and omissions occurring within the scope of their agreement. Thus, each of the parties to an agreement or understanding is guilty of any crime falling within the scope of the common purpose, which is committed in carrying out the, that purpose. Therefore, I am in agreement with the cases of S versus Magezi, S versus Tibius, and other S versus Toby. It goes without saying that, that it goes without saying 
common purpose between state and the, it is common purpose between the state and the defence that common purpose is applicable and that both accused have acted in unison. 44. I have been referred to different approaches by the state and the defence towards the evidence which has been which is before the court. The state indicated that the court must assess the ground of justification to be necessity and that the defense as putative, putative private defense must also to be considered. Therefore, a cardinal principle of criminal law is embodied in the maximus actus non facet reum nisi mens sed rea. An act does not make a person legally guilty unless the mind is legally blameworthy. Necessity, definition X, act in necessity if he acts to protect his or somebody else's life, physical integrity, property, or other legal recognized interests endangered by a threat of harm which has begun or is immediately threatening on which cannot be averted in any other way, provided X is not legally compelled to endure the danger and the interest protected is not out of proportion to the interest threatened. Requirements for the defense or for the plea of necessity, a legal interest must be threatened. May protect another. Emergency begun, not yet ended. X can rely on the defense if he caused the emergency. X must not be legally compelled to endure danger. It must be the only way to avert the danger. X must cons be concise and emergency exists. Not be harm caused, uh, not be more harmful caused than what is necessary. Defense of necessity and private defense is almost similar but differs in material aspects. The difference between the defense of necessity in both cases, it protects certain interests, life, physical integrity, and property against danger, the difference between origin of the attack, defense from an unlawful human attack, necessity from an unlawful human attack, or circumstances as a natural occurrence. Objective at which the defense directed, defense an unlawful human attack, necessity, interest of an innocent third party, or violation of a legal provision. Examples of an act of necessity, a ship sinks in a girl and three survivors clinch to some driftwood. A fourth survivor attempts to hold on to the driftwood but is pushed off and drowns. The emergency was an act of nature and the defense was directed at an innocent person. Now dealing with putative crimes, putative crimes is a type of crime which does not exist, but which X believes to exist. This exception, putative crimes, operates if X is mistaken about the existence of a crime or a legal nature of one or more of its definitional elements. Now, to be more specific, the defense refer, the defense refer me to putative private defense. This is then with the case of S versus Tutor, which the court have indicated should not be read into record. This, of course, is not a true form of private defense. It is usually stated that the test for private defense is objective. This pro 
proposition is acceptable, provided that the role of this objective test is merely to distinguish between actual private defense and putative private defense. Birchall argues there is no absolute duty to retreat from an unlawful attack. The issue of whether the victim could or should have retreated is merely one of many issues to consider. It is also important to look at the following factors. Unlawfulness. Unlawfulness means contrary to the community perception of justice or legal convictions of the community. The Bill of Rights in Chapter 2 of the Constitution must obviously play a role in deciding whether a conduct is in conflict with the public policy or the community perceptions of justice. <coughs> the value the values reflected in the Constitution, such as human dignity, the achievement of equality, and the advancement of human rights and freedom are of crucial importance in deciding these issues. Therefore, in deciding whether a conduct is unlawful or not is the legal convictions and not moral convictions. In dealing with the defense submissions of an example that X actions is at first glance seems to be unlawful in damaging a road and rebuild it to maintain a business and therefore due to legal convictions of the community perceptions of justice, her actions may be deemed lawfully. The court is well aware that this comes out of Sneeman and uh, the heading also with dealing under unlawfulness. This is also then an assault case. In assaulting someone because he refused to grant you entry can never cause more benefit to society than the actual harm that was done. So we cannot directly compare assault with malicious injury to property. Sometimes it will be interpreted lawful, unlawful, but the mere fact in this instance is to the extent that the community will never condone that you may assault somebody just because he does not grant you entry in this regard. The test for unlawfulness, it is sometimes alleged in South Africa, legal literature, that the test to determine unlawfulness is objective. This view is, this view is incorrect and the test should compromise both objective and subjective factors. So when one looks at unlawfulness and culpability, the following may be said. Unlawfulness may be described as a judgment or an evaluation of the act and culpability is the judgment or evaluation of the, perp of the perpetrator. Culpability then. A legal, in legal literature, especially the older literature, as well as the terminology used by the courts, this element is described by the Latin expression of mens rea. Culpability consists of two compartments, criminal capacity in the form of intent and negligent. I will only deal with the form of intent since this required form of culpability is for the crime of assault. There is no negligent or negligent assaulting of another person. This offense can only be uh, incurred by the necessary intent to act according to your will to cause injury to another person. A person commits an act 
while his will is directed towards the commission of the act or the cause of the result. In the knowledge of the existence of the circumstance mentioned in the definitional element of the relevant crime and the knowledge of the unlawfulness of the act. Compliance with the de definitional elements of the unlawful act does not necessarily demonstrate that the person is criminal liably. Additional, additionally to the person must be culpable, have mens rea, example he must be personal personally blameworthy. Criminal capacity connotes that the person must have the ability to, to appreciate the wrongfulness of his action. Cognitive limb, knowledge. And to act in accordance with such appreciation. In brackets, cognitive limb, self-control. Moreover, the act must be supplemented by the prerequisite intention or negligence. It is clear from the application of mens rea in the court that it has nothing necessary to do with notions of an evil mind. Moral fault or knowledge of the wrongfulness of the act, it is generally also irrelevant that an accused acted with a good or a bad motive. The following authorities has been taken into account as referred to by the state in the citation, it as per the heads of arguments, I do not find it necessary to read. For purposes of the electricity that went out, the court have listed all the authorities such as S versus Tibius, which, is, which the state have referred me, and I do assure the court has taken all these cases into consideration. All these cases referred in the court that needs, all these cases referred to what needs to be proved in the requirements with reference to the unlawfulness, real evidence, corroborations, and ultimately the discrepancies and as well as common purpose, as the state have indicated. The defense has also referred the court to the following cases cited as per day heads of arguments, as versus trainer, and all or of other cases as well. But for this record purposes, I believe the most important case which is to be considered is the defense case of S versus Tutor, which they have attached to the heads of arguments. And I believe that is the reason why the full case has been also placed before the court. Now, 46, uh, just before 46, as indicated, all these cases which the defense have referred the court to will deal with private, putative, private defense, the assessment of evidence, intention, cross-examination, onus rests on the state and not accused, and when the court has to draw an inference from the facts which was placed before it. I am aware that, the, that judicial remarks on factual issues, irrespective of the universal nature of the language used to express them, are not principles, even less do they constitute binding precedent. At best, they are useful analogs, indicators of what was done in comparable cases. So all these cases which the court was referred to by the defense in the state, I cannot just simply say that because in those cases certain findings was made, so that findings will then be applicable to the accused. But those are just merely guidelines for the court to come to a just conclusion. So 46, conclusion. 47, 
in deciding whether there is political agenda between the state, every forum, and the National Prosecuting Authority. I found that the only reference to this is in the accuser's plea explanation, in particular in Mr. Malema's evidence in cross-examination. There is, however, no supporting evidence to that effect or a substantial basis for the accusation, and it cannot be upheld, nor may I draw an inference that there is a reasonable possibility that it may be true. This point was also not substantiated, relied on by either party in the heads of arguments before the court. It therefore appears that the crux of the case is whether the accused acted intentionally without any grounds of justification when they assaulted the complainant. 48. South Africa is also in a very unique country and embedded in our history is the adoption of peace and reconciliation. Therefore, to settle less serious matters through a process of mediation, it's well accepted in our legal system and it affords the state and the defense an opportunity to reach an amicable solution between the accused and the complainant. Therefore, Exhibit E is an indication of the outreach of such a process which have failed. The court is not involved in such processes. The state is dominus litus, and the power to withdraw a charge is solely vested in their discretion. Since it has failed, it is not necessary to attach any weight on Exhibit E, as well as the principle of Ubuntu because of the broken down process between the parties. 49, Exhibit A, which is the funeral program of the late Ms. Winnie Mandela, and it is clear that such a program was not received by any of the state witnesses, and even as Mr. Gilbert Mapisa indicated that it was an auspicious event, this is proof that Mr. Malema has played a vital role in terms of the burial process, and it is supported by his version that he was entitled to be at the cemetery. It also goes to the crux of the state, the state of his mind. The test, for the test for intention is subjective. The court must determine what the state of mind of the particular person is. As I have indicated that I would deal with the issues of discrepancies in the state in the, of the state witnesses, evidence which relate to the issue of the statement and the oral evidence. Firstly, the statement creates the impression that the accused was denied access into Memorial Park Cemetery for the burial of the late Miss Winnie Mandela. Secondly, it creates the impression that they were that they were stopped, even if they were part even if they were part of the convoy. Lastly, the version under cross-examination went from nobody other than the family and the president were allowed to enter in the vehicles. Only accredited vehicles with permits could enter. The accused vehicle had no escort. Accused uh, vehicle was not part of the convoy. Even if the vehicle had a permit, he would not allow it to enter. He contacted VOC to get permission to allow them entry and General Zulu did and did not give permission. This is, however, not mentioned 
to determine whether the accused had a right to enter with the vehicle or not. Since I have dealt with this issue in, of entry in the Section 174 application, this is now mentioning in light of credibility, which the court still has to deal with. I found that the discrepancies have created the belief in the mind of the accused that their right to freedom of movement and to dignity is being infringed upon. Which right is being fully protected by our Constitution? This can also not be placed in a comparison of what have transpired prior the convoy arrived. Those people was not part of the people who attended the funeral of the late Maswini Mandela. It was also not being dealt with by it was also being dealt with by Ms. Erasmus, a person of the administration section of Memorial Park Cemetery, who is not the senior of Colonel Fenter. Those people were more acceptable to understand that the cemetery was closed for a state funeral and it did not affect their rights to have closure or to bury a loved one in, in dignity. In terms of the two ladies, they were, all, they were not prevented entry but informed to wait until the family has arrived. God will just repeat that sentence. The two ladies were basically informed. They were not prevented to enter but informed to wait until the family has entered. So no impression was created that they are not allowed to <coughs> enter as in the circumstances of the accused. Therefore, in comparison with the accused who was part of the people who attended the funeral and Mr. Malema who played a vital role, a vital role as per the funeral program, at the stadium that this submission that there was an alternative method to deal with the issues of entry cannot be upheld nor have any weight nor any basis. I understand the state submission saying that this issues could have been dealt with differently but not all people act in the same manner when faced with a threat or danger. In approaching the method to say that because the five people was being dealt with in a certain way and that the accused could have spoken to the senior of the complainant to gain entry peacefully would be to apply an objective test without considering the subjective approach as per the case of S versus Tutor. In this case, the applicant, the applicant was convicted of murder and later on appeal released on the grounds that the court has applied the wrong test in assessing the ground of justification. The facts is shortly that the applicant stabbed two police officers who was chasing him, whereby one died and the other one critically injured. He was convicted of murder and attempted murder. His defense was that he believed that the people who chased him wanted to rob him. He has informed his sister after the incident and also the next day went to report the incident at the police station and was then arrested. On appeal, the court find that the subjective test should be applied to determine whether the ground of putative private defense exists. The state of mind of the applicant at the time of the incident should therefore be considered. Now, looking at intention, irrespective of unlawfulness, the accused must also 
have the intent to co uh, accomplish the definitional elements of the offense of assault. Knowing that the conduct is unlawful or he must foresee the possibility of his conduct, comply with the definitional elements of the offense of assault, and therefore being unlawful, but nevertheless proceed with it. Differently put, he must know or foresee that the type of action in which he is engaging in is criminally punishable. This brings us to the point in the state submission in the defense reply thereto that no version from either accused was put to the complainant during their testimony. The submission by the defense is that no version was put to the accused and that their version was not seriously challenged. To be realistic, to be realistic, one must look at the whole of the evidence, including the plea explanation. When a person says, I act on the ground of justification, then literally he confirms his actions. In this case, the actions refers to the pushing of the complainant. Therefore, it is also not dispute. Therefore, there is no dispute with regards to Exhibit 3. All this evidence is common cause between the state and the defense. It is right law that the test for intention is subjective. So how does the state prove intention? They may do so by way of indirect evidence or indirect evidence. One must also take into account that the accused is under no, obli no obligation to give evidence or to prove his innocence. In this case, they in in this case, they confirm the act of pushing the accused under the belief of justification and to exclude the, any intent of assault the complainant. The version of the complainant affirms that he was assaulted by way of pushing, which is confirmed by the video footage and Mr. Gilbert Mapisa's evidence that he saw people pushing each other. Looking at this with the version of the accused, he pushed him and keep on pushing him to make sure that he does not return to stand in front of the vehicle and blocked it from going in. Our intent was not to assault the complainant, but we wanted to enter the cemetery to pay our last respects to the late Ms. Winnie Mandela, and above all, to get closure. As we then pushed him out of the way so that the vehicle may enter. If if I also look at the indirect proof of intent, the court must then guard against applying an objective, objective test instead of a subjective test. It is dangerous to argue as per follows. Any normal person who commits an act which the accused have committed would know that it would result in the assault of the complainant. Therefore, the accused acted intentionally. Although I am free to apply general knowledge of human behavior and the motivation of such behavior, I know. I know that. <coughs> I know that I must guard against exclusive considering what a normal, ordinary, or reasonable person would have thought or felt in the given circumstances. I should go further than this and must consider all circumstances of the case. 
I have to place myself in the position of the accused at the time of the commission of the offence to establish the state of mind of the accused at the moment. For this reason, the state referral to the five other incidents cannot be accepted as already indicated. Also, that the state of mind must be inferred from the whole of the evidence. I cannot infer from that whole of the evidence because the inference seek to be drawn is also not consistent with all proven facts of the case. And therefore, it must exclude all reasonable inferences. I accept the one that except the one that is seek to be drawn. Therefore, the version of the accused, as I already alluded to, the discrepancies by the state witnesses creates an impression that they are refused entry as a person and will not be part of the mourners, the mourners of at the cemetery, which in turn have led to their actions. This version stand and it was not challenged or contradicted in any way. They intend to remove the complainant to gain entry is also reasonably possibly true. The court also look at the whole merits of the case which is before me. In the case of S versus Souls, the judgment illustrate the dangers of what has been called compartmentalized approach in the assessment of evidence. An approach which separates the evidence before the court into compartments by examining the defense case in isolation from the state's case and vice versa. What must be borne in mind is that the conclusion which is reached, whether to convict or to acquit, must account for all evidence. Some of the evidence may be found to be false, some some of it may be found to be unreliable, but none may simply be ignored. Then when looking at the version of the accused, the court does not have to be convinced that every detail of the accused's version is true. If the accused's version is reasonably possibly true, in substance, the court must decide the matter on the acceptance of that version. Of course, it is permissible to test the accused's version against the inherent <coughs> probabilities, but it cannot be rejected merely because it is improbable. It can only be rejected on the basis of inherent improbabilities. If it can be said that the version is so improbable that it cannot be reasonably possibly true. I would also like to refer to the case of S versus Souls once again. At paragraph 180, E to G. There is no rule of thumb or formula to apply when it comes to the consideration of the evidence of a witness. The trial judge, the trial judge will weigh its evidence, consider its merits and demerits, or having done so, will decide whether there are any shortcomings or defects or contradictions in his testimony to determine whether he is satisfied that the truth has been told. When there is a conflict of fact between the evidence of the state and that of the, def that of the, the accused, the proper approach in the case such as that is for the court to apply its mind not only to the merits and demerits of the case, but also to the probabilities. So one must take into account the state's case has discrepancies, which in turn affects the mindset of the accused. There were mourners on the day in question. They have not planned to be stopped by Colonel Johannes Fenter. 
since the roads to the cemetery was closed and it is as per the evidence as a whole impossible to join the convoy it can then only be as i have already indicated in the section 174 application that the accused had a right to be there i also accept that the accused was not late for the funeral on that day that they were also behind the bmw x5s depicted on exhibit 3 and that the delay in the time was caused by the fact that they were stopped by Colonel Johannes Fenter. That version and explanation is reasonable and probable in light of the discrepancies. I, the erroneous belief in the existence of a ground of justification also, the conduct remains therefore unlawful as well. Subjective factors must be considered in deciding whether an act is lawful or not. However, just as it is wrong to say unlawful is consisting of merely objective external factors, it is similarly wrong to place all emphasis on subjective factors and to forget about the objective ones. No grounds of justification can exist in the absence of objective factors, and for this reason, the accused conduct then remains unlawful. If they subjectively thinks that there is a ground of just justification, whereas in fact there is none, a so-called putative ground of justification is therefore in fact no ground of justification. A putative ground for justification is one that does not legally exist, but which the accused believe to exist. It exists only in the imagination of the accused. They mistakenly believe that their conduct is covered by a ground of justification. This in turn, when one assesses the state's evidence, it will lead the state to believe that the accused is relying on the ground of necessity. I agree with the state. They did not act in necessity and that the ground of justification cannot be upheld with regards to necessity. Even when I agree that the accused did not act in necessity, one should also clearly understand the evidence is in its totality form. The accused indication that they both believe that they were entitled to enter the cemetery and their obstruction is unjustified. In the circumstances, they lack mens rea because they believe that they were entitled to enter. So they believe that they have acted on the ground of justification to gain entry. In this regard, the court cannot ignore the defense submission based on the evidence before the court and that both accused believe that they acted in putative private defense as well. Irrespective of necessity in putative private defense, it is clear that the test for intention, which is the definitional element of the offense of assault, and for putative private defense is subjective. As alluded above, the accused had reason to believe that they acted on a ground of justification, putative private defense. Their version with regards to their intention is clear, as I see no reason not to accept it in light of the discrepancies of the complainant's evidence. This leads the court then to the crux of the state submission, where the defense of justification is a valid defense based on the evidence on the record. This this is a question which the court must also answer on the basis of the evidence in its totality. It is right, Lord, that there are different types of grounds of justification. 
some well-known grounds of justification is private defense, necessity, consent, and official capacity. Defense specifically also referred the court to consider putative private defense. Now, based on all the principles in law concerning justification, it is clear that the court should apply a subjective test and establish the state of mind of the accused at the time of the committal of the offense. In terms of putative defense, 